I'm Aubrey Henderson. I'm a recovering people pleaser turned self-worth coach, here to help you befriend your inner critic, break up with people pleasing, and reconnect with your desire. Every week, I share my answers to your questions, live coaching sessions, interviews, and more to help you reconnect with your self-worth. Have you ever felt stuck in your life and just needed a really fucking good pep talk? Well, babe, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Ask Aubrey. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, babes. Welcome to this week's episode. We are about due for an episode of your questions. And what I do is I keep sort of an archive of all of the questions that I receive from you all, whether they're through Instagram DMs, whether they're through my website, whether they're things I talk to clients about in sessions and they suggest that I bring them to the podcast. Um, You know, I keep all of those things. I hang on to them. And some of them I hang on to for a while because they are, you know, sort of briefer, more concise questions and not necessarily something I can spend a whole episode talking about or need to spend a whole episode talking about, but because they're they're quicker. And so I like to save a couple of those up and then do an episode where I just respond to several of your questions. And so that is what we're going to do in this episode, is I'm just going to jump through a couple questions that you all have shared, you know, in various formats on various topics, and we're going to talk about each of those. So we can just jump right in to this first one. So this first question I have came from actually an individual client of mine who is working on boundary setting, something that has been really challenging for her, and asked me to talk about, you know, what it looks like to set boundaries with yourself. And, you know, that we talk a lot about setting boundaries with other people and, you know, how to set boundaries in our relationships with our family, with our partners, with our friends, but not so much about how to set boundaries with ourselves. And what, you know, this one person I'm thinking of specifically asked me this, but this actually is something that comes up a lot. It came up in my session last week with my, you know, group coaching pilot around, you know, folks who are struggling with people pleasing. And it was the week that we talked about boundaries and this came up. What about setting boundaries with myself? And so I think this is something that a lot of folks struggle with. And, you know, what I would say to this, you know, this person, basically, the question is, how do I set boundaries with myself? What does that look like? What does that mean? And I think a lot of the framework for setting boundaries is the same. So When I talk about boundary setting, when I am coaching somebody through setting a boundary, there are a couple kind of main things that I'll have them think about. And so one of them is, you know, being able to practice boundary setting. So if you're setting boundaries with others, I think, you know, practicing that you have to have kind of a a trusted person or trusted people where you can sort of test that out if that's a new concept for you. And I think, you know, when you're setting boundaries with yourself, I do think that, you know, we can practice and apply these concepts in setting boundaries with other people. And they're some of the same things that apply back to us, right? Which is being really clear and explicit about what we're communicating. That's one of the biggest parts of setting boundaries that's really scary and really hard and is a a kind of a barrier to overcome is being able to be explicit in naming what the boundary is. And that's the part that can feel scary with other people. I think when you're setting a boundary with yourself, whatever that means, 
that part is less scary and more just complicated and confusing and hard to do. So, you know, if we think about, you know, an example of setting a boundary with yourself. So, you know, let me think about like, if I'm, if I have a behavior that I'm engaging in that is like a coping mechanism for me, but I want to stop engaging in that coping mechanism. So let's say that I, (laughs) this is actually true of me. So I, you know, when I get anxious, um, something I frequently turn to is to watch The Office for the seventh millionth time is to just turn on The Office and watch that even though I've seen it, even though I know every line just about to every episode, to turn that on and kind of numb out to it, right? And I've identified that this is something that I do, something that I do kind of automatically, um, but that it's something that afterward Let's say in this scenario, I, you know, I feel bad about it. I don't like that I do it. It's not something that I want to do. I don't feel good after I do it. So I want to stop engaging in it. And I'm setting a boundary for myself around that. And so it's kind of the same concept of being super clear up front about what the boundary is. If we go into it and we're kind of like, I feel bad that I'm numbing out with, you know, reruns of sitcoms. And I want to do something about that, but we're not clear about what it is that we want to do or what we want to change. If we don't set very clear parameters from the beginning, we're setting ourselves up to fail. Because is it, I just can't watch TV anymore? Is it, I just can't watch comedies? Is it, I can't watch this specific comedy? You know, what is the actual boundary for myself? And communicating that with yourself, even if it's just with you, even if you're the only person who knows about what this boundary is because it's a boundary with you, being really clear about that. Maybe it's writing it down. Maybe it's just literally saying it out loud or being aware of sort of the really specific parameters of it. But being specific still, even though you're not having to communicate it to anybody else, being really clear and really specific about what the boundary is. Then the next piece that I encourage people to be mindful of when they're setting a boundary is to be clear about not only what the boundary is, but also what happens if the boundary gets violated ahead of time. And so I'll use the same example. And mind you, the, whatever the boundary is you need to set with yourself could be completely different than this. And that's fine. This all still applies. So, you know, being clear about what happens if the boundary is broken or if, yeah, if that boundary is not honored, if you're not honoring that for yourself. Knowing that ahead of time and being clear about it with yourself ahead of time. So again, maybe it's writing it down. Maybe it's looking at your own face in the mirror and saying it out loud. Whatever gives you that sense of accountability of, you know, if I do this, if I find myself, you know, still numbing out with television, this is what's going to happen as a result. That's important to have that have that clarity on what the consequence is ahead of time. And it's important still when it's you, even though it's not kind of the same concept as like you got to let other people know so they can make the choice about whether or not they want to honor the boundary. I think the same is true for you and just creating that clarity and, you know, creating kind of the process of events so that if, you know, if you don't honor your own boundary, if you don't follow through with the promise you've made to yourself, then there's no deciding what the next step is, right? So for me, maybe it's, man, this is really a bummer to think about. But yeah, let's say that I I tell myself, you know, I don't want, when I feel anxious, I don't want to turn on 
the office and play it in the background as a way to numb out my emotion. When I feel anxious, I want to choose something else that allows me to tap into my emotion instead of numbing out. So I'm not going to do this. And if I find myself turning on the office and I don't honor that boundary for myself, then I'm going to cancel my Netflix subscription. And I've just, you know, I decide for myself. And again, this has to be it has to be a boundary that feels realistic to you, that feels like you're actually going to honor it, that feels, you know, like you're not necessarily doing something that feels to you as over the top. It has to feel genuine. But whatever that is, so, you know, knowing what that consequence is ahead of time. So maybe for me, it's like, okay, if I, you know, I'm going to take Netflix away from myself or, you know, like block the app somehow or figure out, you know, a way that I can have that consequence if I'm not able to kind of redirect from this behavior on my own or honor that boundary on my own, right? And then the third piece, I think, is really is being able to follow through on what that consequence is and actually doing it. So not just identifying it ahead of time, but actually once you reach the point where you're like, I'm not honoring my own boundaries, I have to give myself a consequence. And that's what's challenging when you are you know, setting a boundary with yourself is I think this idea of consequences and holding firm to those boundaries becomes difficult in a different way than it is for, you know, when we're in relationship with other people, we're setting boundaries with other people. I think when we're in relationship with other people and we're setting boundaries with them, there is this fear of being mean or this fear of inciting conflict that we are, you know, afraid of. And I think when it comes to setting boundaries with ourselves, what the fear is, is this fear of not having accountability or, you know, the struggle with not having accountability. If the only person we're accountable to is ourselves, for a lot of us, that's the first promise that we'll break is the promise we've made to ourselves. And so that's what you're sort of solving for is a way to create accountability within yourself and a way to really, to really be able to follow through on what those boundaries are. Um... So, you know, I think another thing that people think about when they think about setting boundaries with with ourselves, it's either, you know, I make promises to myself and don't follow through on them and like need to create that self-accountability, which I think some of that is solved for by, you know, finding ways to get more concrete in your commitments, get more specific in your commitments, whether it's writing them down, whether it's, you know, repeating them to affirm them, whether it's you know, whether it is sharing with someone else that that's your that's what you're working on for yourself and sort of creating that external accountability with somebody that you trust and who is going to hold you accountable to it in a kind way and not in like a punishing way. But I also think there are ways that we, we talk about this, you know, having boundaries with ourselves. But what we actually mean is really about our inability to hold firm to boundaries with other people, if that makes sense. So what I mean by that is, you know, we'll we'll say, you know, I I struggle with keeping with holding, you know, boundaries with myself or with setting boundaries with myself. But really what it means is that we're kind of moving, we're being more flexible on boundaries with others or we're we're not following through on the consequence. We're not doing that last piece of, you know, we can set we can name the boundary. We can tell the people that the boundary is there, but when they cross it, we're kind of just letting them cross over it. And so there's this, there's kind of this, it feels like lack of accountability to self when it's also related to our relationships with others. And I think these things are all wrapped up within each other, right? 
And so I think the thing the thing to really be mindful of is what what is the accountability structure for you? What does that look like? And also, does it feel like like punishment? Because I think that's another thing that you, you know, get in danger of slipping into when you're when you're focused on kind of self boundaries as it becomes this this thing around self discipline or we're you know, we really want to like get ourselves to do a thing. So we think that that punishing ourselves is the way. And if you've been here with me for any amount of time, you know that the idea of punishing yourself for anything is not my jam. It's not what I believe is helpful at all. Um, I don't think, you know, shaming yourself into, you know, living into a boundary or following through on something that's a new practice is helpful. And so I think also being mindful of how you are holding yourself accountable, but doing so in a way that is kind and compassionate towards yourself, I think is also really important to remember. So that's that on setting boundaries with yourself. The next question I have is about trust. So someone asked me, and this was in response to something that I shared on Instagram. Um, Somebody asked me, when you think about trust, do you think trust starts at zero? Like when somebody is in relationship with you, they start at zero trust and have to earn it? Or do they start at 100 and then they kind of spend it down or it's theirs to lose? And why? So with trust, is tr- do you start at zero with new people and they have to build up the trust? Or do they start with full trust and it gets kind of chipped away? I think this is an interesting one. I think this is different for everybody, obviously. Um, I tend to be, and I thought about my answer to this question, and I, you know, I tend to be somebody who is, who moves through the world in a pretty trusting way, but I think it's measured. And I, I feel pretty good about this orientation, right? Is that I... My philosophy in in relationships is that I really value openness and vulnerability. I talk about that a lot here. I think, you know, moving through the world in a way that we are we are open with others, and that we are willing to be brave and be vulnerable in relationships with others is really important and is a significant value of mine. So I am a little more trust oriented. Um, And so people definitely do not start at zero trust and have to build that all the way up. But with that said, um, I don't think that people start at absolute full 100% trust. I think there is there is a way that that's sort of um, that's sort of balanced for me. And it's it's not right in the middle either. It's probably closer to people starting with more trust and then it's kind of yours to keep or lose um, versus a reality where people have to like really earn it. Um, but I think this is interesting. It shows kind of what kind of values we place on on trust and kind of what our natural orientation is toward um, toward humans in general and how we move through the world. But I, to be clear, I don't think there's a wrong answer to that question. Um, but this person was curious about mine. So that's mine. Okay, the next question we have, why is it easier to love others and forgive their faults or flaws than to forgive or love ourselves? I have always struggled with this. I think a lot of it is socializing 
As women especially, we are socialized to give others endless grace, but aren't taught how to apply that to ourselves. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I think this is, and really, this person is kind of asking philosophically why, and then sort of answers her own question here. I mean, I think this is something that's that a lot of people struggle with. A lot of my clients in particular, and this is something I personally struggle with as well, um, are so kind of nurturing and have this like really loving, gracious orientation toward just about everyone else um, and find it so easy to, and it go, goes back to the trusting question even, so easy to be trusting and open and forgiving toward others and kind of have this endless well of grace for other people and other people can fuck up and fuck up and fuck up and hurt them and it's okay and there's this this forgiveness and this grace for that and then when it comes time to apply that to themselves or to myself this again me personally definitely true it's a lot harder to do that and I think that's for a lot of reasons I think that's I think a big part of that is because, and again, for for folks who kind of are are oriented toward somebody who is a self-worth coach, and so you're listening to this podcast, may be familiar with, you know, the the struggle of viewing yourself as less than others, or just struggling with your concept of worthiness in general, or your confidence. And so there's this sense of like, oh, well, yeah, other people are more deserving than I am of kindness or of grace or forgiveness. I think this is also a way that we find love and belonging is by really being loving and nurturing toward other people, by being forgiving to other people. You know, if you're an Enneagram 2, for example, which I know a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are, you know, or if you're somebody who's a people pleaser or somebody who experiences codependency you know the way that we get love the way that we get our needs met is often by loving and nurturing and taking care of other people and so it becomes our natural orientation because that's how we're getting our social needs met our emotional needs met some you know sometimes as kids it's how we got our physical needs met so that comes naturally it's it's what it's what we do and it's it's how to this person's point, it's how we're socialized. It's how we get by. And I think, you know, the the self-criticism stuff, it's it's all the same kind of inner critic struggle that I that I talk about a lot here. It's this idea that we're extra harsh on ourselves and we're we're extra critical of ourselves. And it's it can be really hard to apply that sense of forgiveness or of grace. And you know, something I've talked to a lot of people about lately, and I have a couple of clients in particular who struggle with this idea that if you are, you know, taking care of yourself, nurturing yourself, going easy on yourself, then you're being lazy or you are letting yourself off the hook or you're not living up to your potential. Like we have just demonized caring for yourself and just really like loving on yourself and doing things that you know are are soothing and that bring you joy and that bring you pleasure and that includes acts of forgiveness and grace and kindness towards yourself 
And so I think, yeah, I think if we're asking why, I think there's a there's a ton of reasons why, and it's different different for everybody, but some cocktail of those things, right? Of how we're how we've been socialized, how we, you know, learned to play a role in our relationships, what we've experienced, um, you know, in our relationships up until this point, how we, you know, see our own worth and value in the world. I think all of those things play a role. And I think a big part of a lot of people's self-worth journey is in being able to make a conscious shift. I think that shift does not happen in your mindset. I really believe it will not happen if you are not consciously grabbing that and changing it. Like if you are not making an effort to reorient yourself to believe that you are worthy of that same forgiveness and grace and kindness and care and you're not making the intentional effort to think about yourself with a similar lens that you apply to other people, it's not going to just happen for you. I really believe that it's not just going to happen. I think if you struggle with this, there are ways that you have to really take control of that mindset and shift that mindset. And I think it's already an excellent insight that this person is having to be able to say, why can I apply this grace so easily to other people and not to myself? And I think being able to have that insight, to see that you do have the capacity for forgiveness, for care, for kindness and warmth and nurturing, and that you you know share it liberally with others and that you're not able to apply it yet to yourself and yet being the key word here, because you will be able to with intention, I believe this, but seeing that you have capacity for that and that you do that well and that it feels easy means that you know how to do it and what we're doing is we're reprogramming ourselves to be able to do that and so I think that gives a little insight into the why and also a little taste of the how can you start to change it but I think that is a one of the big keys to self-worth this is something that people struggle and struggle and struggle with um, but that I think really you can transform your entire life by changing this this viewpoint and by shifting this mindset in exactly the way you're suggesting. So you're on to something really good. Okay, next. So this one is actually, this happens a lot actually, is that somebody will send me like a meme or like a post or something that they read and made them think of my work and then to say like, hey, can you do a podcast episode on this topic? So basically someone reached out to me and said, hey, I would love to hear you talk about this idea of, you know, this kind of toxic idea of, you know, you can, you're never going to be able to love somebody else or be loved by someone else if you don't love yourself. And that this idea actually is is toxic and harmful and why. Um, and it's like, I always think of um, RuPaul <laughs> and RuPaul's Drag Race when, you know, there's the kind of tagline of if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Um, but yeah, I think this is something that can be sort of weaponized against people and can be really harmful. I think, you know, when when shared in the wrong kind of like context and I think there's it goes along with this whole like it feels like a cousin to like toxic positivity, like, you know, just have good vibes and, you know, 
you'll find love when you stop looking for it and all of those things. But yeah, I think this is, I think this can be harmful. And I think it's what it suggests that is really not great is this idea that no one's going to love you until you can love yourself. When somebody's already struggling to love themselves, we are then suggesting that also you're unworthy or undeserving of other people's love until you like get your shit together or until you you know, figure out what's wrong with your self-confidence or your self-worth or until you get a handle on your mental illness in some cases, right? Is this idea that no one else is ever going to love you if you can't be perfectly mentally well and healthy and have like a super healthy self-concept. And so, I mean, I think, (laughs) I don't agree. I don't agree that you can't love somebody else if you don't love yourself. I don't agree with that. Um, And I definitely don't agree that nobody else is going to love you if you can't love yourself. I don't agree with that. Um, Do I agree that cultivating a sense of self-love is incredibly important? Yes, absolutely. I think it's critical. This is something that I work with all of my clients on and, you know, is a really important piece that I don't think, I I don't work with them on this so that they can then find a partner. It's not a like, let's let's develop your self-worth as the first step to you finding love and romance, which is actually the most important thing and the end goal, right? For me, and I've, you know, spoken about this when I think about, you know, the concepts of people pleasing or, you know, folks who are struggling with low self-worth, low self-concept, is this idea that, you know, when you're sourcing all of your self-worth from other people, when your ability to love yourself is only fueled by what other people think of you or, you know, how many people love you or if you're in only if you're in a relationship, do you then feel worthy of love? To me, that is the problem and the challenge and the place that I want to support and uplift people to really think about that and really look at that. Because I think the challenge there is that what we're doing is we're hinging our self-worth on something that is external to us that we have no control over. And so when I have clients who are wanting to build up their sense of self-worth, who are really wanting to pour into that part of themselves, the, you know, the next step to that is not, well, find somebody who loves you and then you'll feel worthy. Or, you know, it's not, well, if you just focus on loving someone else, then that's going to be your sense of purpose and your sense of worth and you won't need to love yourself. For me, it's this, it's this element of cultivating your sense of self-worth as something that comes from within so that when you're receiving love from outside of you, when you're giving love to others outside of you, That's not what everything is hinging on. That's not the center of your universe. You are the center of your universe because you are the one element that you can control. You are the one element that you that you have complete control over and that is not variable in the way that, you know, even if you're in the strongest relationship and you think everything is going well, it could end. And that's bleak, I know, but it's true. You know, the best friendship of your entire life could end tomorrow. You know, the relationship that you're in that's going really well at some point could end. 
you know, everybody around you that you love, something could happen to them or your relationship with them could, you know, stop being as it is right now. And if your entire sense of your own worth is tied up in that, that's a problem because it leaves you vulnerable to a situation where not only are you experiencing grief, which is something different, and this is not to say that, you know, only just cultivate self-love so you don't have to care about anyone else or have attachment to anyone else. That's not what I'm suggesting. But we're talking about a reality where not only, you know, if you're in, if your self-worth comes from your romantic partnership, for example, and you don't have the sense of self-worth within yourself, but you get a lot of worth affirmation from your relationship with your partner and you're like, that's all I need, and something happens to your partner and you lose them, not only are you in immense grief because you have lost the person that you love in whatever capacity, so there's that, and your source of self-worth is gone. Your sole source of self-worth is gone. And so when I am coaching people and supporting them in developing that inner sense of self-worth and that connection to their, you know, core beliefs and core desires and loving what makes them them, that's not, an, you know, some way to sort of disconnect from other relationships or have those not be important. But it's distributing where we get that sense of meaning from across multiple places, Right. And so when, you know, the way that I then choose to interpret this idea of, you know, you can't love somebody else until you love yourself or like you can't truly feel loved by somebody else until you love yourself. I don't think that's true, but I think there's a version of that that's, you know, you're not going to you're not going to be completely fulfilled in your own self-concept by someone else loving you. You know, someone else loving you is not the complete picture. You loving someone else is not the complete picture if you do not love yourself. I think that's how I think about that. So yes, I think it can be weaponized and can absolutely be a toxic idea. Um, I don't think that you have to have a perfect sense of self-worth to be able to successfully love or be loved by another human, and you deserve to love and be loved by other humans wherever your self-worth is at right now. I also think you deserve to have a kick-ass sense of self-worth. Yeah. Okay. And the last question, this one's kind of juicy. I thought about doing a whole episode on this. Maybe I will. If you are into this, please let me know. Um, But I at least wanted to do just a quick hit on this one. So this person wrote to me and said, what do we do about the pros and cons of codependency? Um, Like maybe that lead to something more like codependency management than codependency recovery. It's having boundaries on your own codependency, but not treating it like it's a disease. Or am I just in denial? There are good qualities I think I learned from codependency, and now I try and balance it. Or am I wrong? I love this question, one, because of just like the very conversational tone of this, um, because this is a person I know who wrote this. Uh, But this is such an interesting question. And I was actually, I was a guest on a podcast recently where the host asked me about codependency and was describing codependency. And the thing that the person was describing was actually, I think, the way that we use the term codependency really casually, which is this idea of like needing other people and other people needing us and being in a relationship where we're sort of 
enmeshed with another person and like really inter our lives are intertwined and we kind of don't know where we end and the other person begins. And I, you know, I think we throw around this term codependency to mean those types of things, right? Relationships that are really close where we like really need each other maybe more than we're comfortable with. When actually when I talk about codependency, I'm talking about it in kind of the informed by more of like an addiction recovery type of space. And so the way that that if you look into like codependency recovery or codependence anonymous, what you'll find is that codependency is really defined as being the need to be needed. So basically, you know, often it'll be a person who is the partner of someone who is active in addiction or substance abuse. And the person who is the codependent is basically kind of a for lack of a better phrasing, is addicted to being needed by a person struggling with addiction. So like if I mean, for my example, I was in a relationship for some time with somebody who was active in alcoholism. And there are ways that I'm able to look back now and see that I felt needed in that relationship because that person was struggling in their addiction. And I felt I was filling a role by sort of you know, nurturing him and taking care of him. And, you know, he he needed me. He was struggling and he needed me. And that fed something within my ego and was, you know, something that at a certain point I became dependent on. And so that's when I describe codependency, what I'm talking about, and it's kind of a, a sibling of people pleasing, is this this need to be needed by others and usually one particular other person. And to the point that you're kind of, potentially enabling harmful behavior or boundary violating behavior or dangerous behavior because you're fueling somebody struggling so that they'll continue to need you. And it's sort of a vicious cycle. And so with that definition, I mean, I see this and I'm like, no, I don't. I don't know that I think that there's a way to, you know, sort of like live into that and like manage the pros and cons of that. I think by that definition, Codependency can be really dangerous, really unhealthy. Um, you know, as somebody who would consider myself to be in recovery from codependency, I think it's something that that I don't particularly think of as as something you could kind of do half and half. But you know, I think if you're talking about if we're talking about codependency more as a concept of you know being deeply connected, deeply attached to others and being in relationships where we depend upon one another, I think definitely it can. This is something I talk about with folks when I'm talking about people pleasing a lot as well, because there is this way that we sort of source our identity from being someone who's a caretaker or a nurturer. And we, you know, we see the things that are positive about it. And I think not necessarily, I think with codependency, even, you know, my version of codependency and what I'm talking about as it relates to codependency in addiction or in mental illness, there are certainly positive elements that that folks who struggle with codependency have. They also are complete whole people, right? So there are things about that. I mean, certainly the idea behind it of wanting to nurture and, and love and care for another human being are great things and things that we don't want to like trash completely. When I talk to folks who are people pleasers, you know, I I like to give the caveat of, you know, I'm not 
my goal here is not to get you to the point where you're an asshole and you're mean to people and you're rude and you're cold. It's not to do a complete shift in the other direction. And there are ways that, you know, there are personality traits that often are associated with people pleasing that are not inherently harmful. The idea of wanting to be helpful and warm and caring toward others as an orientation is not negative. And so I think that that's that's something where we can say, yeah, like it's not about completely eliminating this entire part of myself, but it is about seeing what is, and this is true kind of for any behavior we're struggling with relationally, but like this is true for codependency, this is true for people-pleasing, this is true for, you know, struggling with self-worth in our relationships, is we have to see which pieces of that are harming us, right? Where, and and good clues with that with codependency or with people-pleasing is to look at you know, where am I building resentment behind the scenes? Where is this causing me pain? Where is this causing me harm in my relationships? Where am I, you know, seeing myself kind of build up this anger that I don't know how to deal with? Where am I seeing myself get taken advantage of or walked all over, right? Where am I seeing my relationships start to feel one-sided? And, you know, really pinpointing what those things are because it, what it feels like from this question is that there's kind of hesitancy to like throw everything out that you've learned about relationships. And I agree with that. I would never suggest like just start from scratch and completely, you know, forget everything you ever knew and start over. I think it's more helpful to start with the things that aren't working and kind of systematically look to tweak those things, right? And so I think, you know, if you're thinking about codependency in terms of closeness with other people and being in relationships that are like really, really intimate and really connected, there are pros to that, right? The idea that you're able to have intimacy and have closeness with another human being, that's a strength. And I don't want you to get rid of that. And I don't think you do either. But I would look at what are the things that make you identify with codependency and the things that are challenging for you and how can you eliminate some of those things while also identifying like what are the parts that feel good to you and my guess would be that even if you looked up like the you know diagnostic definition of codependency the things that feel good to you about it probably aren't on that list they're probably character traits or personality traits that you've come to associate with that But they're not actually the kind of factors that are causing you to label it as codependency. So that's what I would say, you know, focusing on what are the things that are creating challenge and not feeling like you need to scrap the entire identity of whatever codependency means to you, but instead focusing on the parts that are actually causing pain and kind of eliminating those one at a time until you get to a point that you feel better. I hope that helps. And thanks, y'all, for going on this little journey with me through all of these archived questions. As always, you know, feel free to send me anything you want me to talk about here. Um, You know, mostly it's kind of personal development, self-worth, relationships, boundaries, inner critic, all of that good stuff are things I love to talk about. But really anything that you personally are struggling with, um, I would love to hear from you. So, you know, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Feel free to reach out through my website. All of my info um, can be found in the show notes. And, you know, maybe I'll include your question on an episode soon.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you loved it, please take a second to subscribe on your favorite platform, leave a rating or a review, and take a screenshot and share it on social media or with a friend who needs to hear a message like this one. I love the chance to hear from you and connect with you because it gives me the opportunity to remind you that you are worthy, worthy of wholeness and happiness and just good things. So send me the question or the topic that's keeping you up at night or that you just want to hear more about. You can send me a voice memo at anchor.fm slash Aubrey Henderson, and I can actually include any voice memos that you send me in the show, which I think is pretty bad. Or you can send a good old-fashioned written message from my website at aubreyhenderson.com. I'll see you next time, babes.